turn to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. And we'll finish up, hopefully, with chapter number 8 tonight. The book of Daniel. Chapter number 8. If you remember, we began chapter 8 last time, and uh, we began to look, take a look at Daniel's second vision and the prophecy that was given to him. And uh, it, I told you, it's absolutely amazing how these prophecies line up with the historical events that, that took place just a few centuries later. Uh, remember what he saw. He saw a ram with two horns, and we jumped ahead into verse 15, and we looked at the interpretation. Actually, we looked at that whole section there from 15 to 22. And we were given the interpretation by the angel Gabriel, and we were told that the ram with the two horns was the uh, media Persian Empire. Uh, and the, I think the two horns represent uh, Darius and, and Cyrus. So uh, and one of the horns became greater, and that was Cyrus, and uh, eventually the, the empire was merged together into the Persian Empire. I, had a, I, I was thumbing through the religious channels the other night. I don't know why I do that. That's a dangerous thing to do because there's, I don't know how religious they really are. But uh, I came across uh, a program called The End of the Age by Irvin Baxter. Somebody recently had anonymously given me some tapes by Irvin Baxter, and I hadn't had a chance to listen to them. Uh, actually, they're DVDs. I hadn't had a chance to watch them. Uh, but, uh, and I, I do have a little bit of a red light when I look at Irvin Baxter because not only is he on TBN and some of those places, but but uh, he believes that the church is going to go through the Great Tribulation. And, and you know, that to me is, raises a red flag because that, that uh, speaks to some of your other theology. When you believe the church will go through the Great Tribulation, it, it, I think it, it kind of gives me the red flag that maybe you're a little bit legalistic and that, that uh, maybe you're a little bit proud if you think you can go through the Great Tribulation. But... But uh, I certainly don't want to be here, and I know I'm not going to be here because God, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and uh, so we, we're not going to be judged, and that's the judgment of God, the last part of the Great Tribulation. So I don't believe we're going to be here. But with that said, I, the reason I stopped, he, I, as soon as I flipped it, it was the beginning of the program, and he was going through Daniel chapter 7, which is, a, which is the chapter we just looked at. And whenever I see something like that, I say, well, maybe, maybe there's something we can glean out of this. And so I listen to the program, and, and hey, he, was, he agreed with me so in a lot of areas, so he, you know, he's not so bad after all. Uh, actually, the, he, he went through the, the four beasts in the, actually went through two of them into the next program. I think he's going to get the leopard. But he went through the first beast, and the first beast in chapter 7, if you remember, was a lion with, with eagle wings. And he went through a detailed proof that that is England and the United States. And he went to all sorts of uh, uh, references to England as the line. He showed pictures on Time Magazine and Newsweek of them as the line. Uh, there's this big statue of a line in front of Parliament. So, so he, you know, he has no doubt that it's England. Uh, then the eagle's wings, well, we've discussed that. I and mean, it's pretty obvious that the United States, the symbol of the United States is the eagle. And obviously the United States... Uh, came out of England. Now, where he would disagree with me, when I said the wings were plucked away, it says the United States has taken off the scene. That's the way I see that, and I still see that verse. But he says that, that, that the wings grew out of the line, and then they were, the plucking away was when we declared our independence 
from England. And then he, but that shows you where he goes a little bit, really stretches it. He said that then, then when he was made to stand up like a man, I see that as referring to, to the lion having to stand on its own two feet. But he sees that as the Uncle Sam, uh, as, as pictured in Uncle Sam. Now, I don't know where he gets that, but, but he was right on the first part anyway. All right, now, and the reason he sees the, and he sees Russia, and he went through, you know, uh, great detail to, uh, uh, to prove that Russia was the, the bear. And I agree, agree that Russia is the bear. And, and, but he made a point in there, and there's a reason I bring it up that, that I didn't catch when I was going through it that I agree with him 100% on. And that brings us back to chapter number 8 when we were looking at this vision. In the chapter 7... Uh, the, the media pers- the people who believe that that first empire is Babylon and the second empire is, is uh, media Persia attribute that to being, attribute that beast to being a, a bear, media Persia's symbol being a bear. But here's where the problem arises. In, in the Bible, the beasts that are used to refer to nations are consistent throughout. I mean, who's the dragon throughout the Bible? Satan, okay? Satan's the dragon. And so why would the author in one chapter or in one vision, he get the, the beast symbolized as, as uh, a uh, ram, and in the other chapter, he's symbolized as a, uh, what's, what's the symbol in the, the media Persian in chapter 7? See, it was the... Go back to chapter 7. Media Persia was the, you had the hit, the uh, four great beasts. The first was like the lion, the second with the eagle's wing, and I watched, and the, suddenly there was a beast, a second like a bear. So, no, that's chapter 7. What am I? No, there's, yeah, they would, they would say that the, that the, the bear represents Media Persia. Most scholars believe that that this vision is a repeat of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That's what we looked at last week. So they would say that the bear represents Media Persia. And then you get to chapter eight. We're told by Gabriel that this is Media Persia, and it's represented by the ram. And so he made the point that it would be, you know, it wouldn't make sense that God would use two different beasts to represent the same nation. And so I agree with that totally, and that's, that's why I stopped on that for a second. Uh, I, I, he, I, I read ahead, I, I went to his website to see who he thought the leopard was, and he thought, thinks the leopard is, an, is a, uh, a, a joint effort between France and Germany, and that they joined together in, in, as a as an empire. I don't, I don't see that happening, so I would totally disagree with that too. But anyway, I think he does make the right point there that, 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 the, that, the, that the ram can't be the bear, that media Persia can't be in both of these prophecies. They can't be the same. So anyway, with that said, let's go back to where, where we were. So we got the ram with two horns, and we're given the interpretation. It's the media Persian empire, and, it's, and the ram, is dis- there's a goat that comes on the scene, and the ram is destroyed by the goat. And we're told who the goat is. Who's the goat? You remember who the goat was? The goat is Greece. And the Greece had a great horn. And who was that great horn? That was Alexander the Great. And then the horn was suddenly broken off. And 
the beast, that horn was replaced with four notable horns. And I told you who those notable horns were. Those were the four generals who ended up with the Greek Empire uh, divided amongst themselves. And that would be Cassander, who, who, who assumed the Macedonian Greece, uh, Lysimachus, uh, who took most of Asia Minor, Ptolemy, who took Egypt and Palestine, and uh, Seleucus, uh, who took uh, Sirius, Syria and Babylon. Okay? And so that begins, remember what we talked about last week, that begins what's known as the intertestamental period, the interbiblical period, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the time uh, when, the, when Jesus Christ is, is born on this earth. So, so it's known as the intertestamental period. And a lot of stuff happens there, and we're going to be told a little bit about what happens uh, as we look at the rest of uh, chapter number 8. So go with me to verse number 9, and let's pick up there. It says in verse number 9, it says, And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, what do you think the glorious land is? The United States. No. That's Israel. You, can, you know for sure that's Israel. Now, most scholars, and, and it almost has to be uh, the answer to this, to this riddle, most scholars believe that the horn came from the Seleucid Empire because in the latter part of the Greek Empire, there arose a great general, uh, and his name, you probably are familiar with his name, Antiochus Epiphanes. And he rose up, and he became the eighth dynasty of the Seleucid Empire. And what he began to do is something that hadn't happened prior to that, he began to try to take over the other four empires. And he had a lot of success with that. And that's why it says that out of one of them came a horn which was exceedingly great. And he grew toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. So Ptolemy was controlling Palestine and Egypt. And he went down and conquered Palestine and Egypt. And that's, that's really what we're concerned about. So, so uh, here you have this guy, Antigas Epiphanes. Uh, you talk about a wicked man. He was one of the most wicked tyrants who who ever walked this earth and, and did some terrible things. And, and uh, 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 he took control of a lot of territory. And, and we'll see uh, in a minute that he was the perpetrator of what's known as the abomination of desolations. Now, with that said, and you're going to see how this prophecy kind of moves from, from uh, Antiochus Epiphanes to the Antichrist. That, this prophecy is two, a two-fold prophecy. It's a prophecy about a, a, an event in the near future, about uh, the, the uh, empire of Antiochus Epiphanes, but it's also a prophecy about the Antichrist. It's what scholars call prophetic foreshortening. I don't know if you've heard of that before or not. But it's where the prophecy names a past event or a near future event, and at the same time, it prophesies about an event far, far away in the future. And you can think of all sorts of examples of that in the Bible. I, I just pick one. You remember in, in Hosea chapter 11, uh, uh, the prophet says, God, the Lord says, out of Egypt I call my son. Now, who is he talking about there? He's talking about speaking of a past event, but who is he speaking of there? He's talking about the nation of Israel, and he's talking about the Exodus. But if you go over to Matthew, that, that verse is quoted there also. 
And it says, out of Egypt I call my son. And who is that prophecy referred to? That's the fulfillment that took place when Jesus Christ uh, went up into, went down into Egypt as a, as, a, as a baby and then came up as a toddler once Herod had died. And so that prophecy is quoted in Matthew, out of Egypt I called my son. So, so that's a twofold prophecy. And this is a twofold prophecy. And you're going to see that as we go along. So, so let's look at what Antiochus did. We, we, get a, we, get a, we get an interpretation of it right here in this, this next verse. Look at number, verse number 10, beginning in verse number 10. It says, and it grew up, and, and it grew up to the host of the heaven, and it cast down some of the host and, and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, that is a pretty uh, mystical verse right there. And I don't know exactly what it means. And I don't think anybody knows exactly what it means except the Lord, what he intended by that, that part of the vision. Uh, I think it maybe might speak of the type of the Antichrist and maybe some angelic battles that take place between the host of demons and, and uh, the angels who are behind with Gabriel, the godly angels, the good angels. So, so, I, so and, and we don't get any detail there, but, but that's, I think, in the long term, it's speaking of some kind of heavenly battle that takes place. But in the short term, I agree with John Walford's interpretation of, that he uses in his commentary of Daniel. And listen, listen to what he says. He says, the best explanation is that this prophecy relates to the persecution and destruction of the people of God, Israel, with Antiochus, even defying the angelic host who are their protectors, even defying the power of God himself. And this Antiochus Epiphanes was, was, I mean, he was a, a forerunner, no doubt, of the Antichrist. His, his original name was uh, Mathrodites, uh, and, and when he took power, he assumed the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. You know what Epiphany means. What's Epiphany mean? The appearance. Antiochus means God, the appearance of God. So when he came into power, he, he said, I'm God manifest. And uh, he did his best to live up to that name, and he set himself up against God. And against God's angels. Uh, look, look at the next few verses there. Verse, and, and this almost reads like history. If you read about that time period when Antiochus was, was uh, in ruling uh, in, over Israel, uh, it reads just like history. Look, pick up with me in verse number 11. It says, He even exalted himself as the prince, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, as God. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. In other words, he did away with the Yahweh's temple worship. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. He got away with it. The Lord allowed him to get away with it. And, and the more a tyrant prospers, the more emboldened he becomes. And that's what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. It says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking. Now, we don't know who these holy ones are. I would think maybe there are two angels speaking to one another. It might be the Lord is holy. So he might have been speaking to one of his holy angels or one of his holy angels ask him, how long is this going to, how long are you going to allow this? We see something similar at the throne of God in the book of Revelation. So, so, so this certainly would fit. But he says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one. And that certain one who was speaking said, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and transgressions of desolation, the abomination of desolation? 
the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And the other holy one said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. 2,300 uh, days. Now, you would think maybe it would be that 1290, but it's 2,300 uh, 2, days that then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now, when Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Pal Palestine, let me tell you what he did. He immediately sent messengers to Jerusalem. And he said, you guys are no longer Jews. You are Greeks. And a lot of Jews at this point had been Hellenized. What's it mean? I told you last week what it meant to be Hellenized. It means to, to be immersed in the Greek culture, to worship their gods, to speak Koine, this Koine language, to, to uh, study their philosophers, uh, just to be totally immersed in the in the Greek culture. And a lot of Jews did that, but there were some Jews that didn't. And, and when Antiochus found out that they weren't submitting to this Hellenization process, he sent messengers in and ordered them to immediately give up all their ties to Judaism. He told them there will be no more burnt offerings. There will be no more feast days. There will be no more observances of the Sabbath. Can you imagine telling a Jew, a a, an Orthodox Jew that you can no longer observe the Sabbath. There will be no more circumcision of your children. If you circumcise your children, we'll kill the child. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and he said that anybody that refuses to obey these commands will be put to death. And then he ordered, here's the one that, that really made the Jews mad. Now they were already mad. But th this made the Orthodox Jews very mad. He ordered that the altar in the temple be torn down and replaced with the altar to his god, Zeus. And he had power over Jerusalem from 171 B.C. to 164 B.C., which is just about 2,300 or so days. So it fits perfectly with that prophecy. Now, around 167 BC, Antiochus came into the temple and he offered a pig. You know how Jews feel about pigs. They weren't to even touch a pig. You might wonder maybe if God had that in mind. I don't know that God was so much against pork, but he, he gave them certain kosher things that they could eat and certain things that were an abomination to them. And he wanted it to be an abomination to them so that when they did, when their sins were, uh, when, their, when, when God's wrath was full, when, when their sins were fulfilled, then God brought this upon the Jewish people and he wanted this to be an abomination to them. So anyway, in 167 B.C., Antiochus comes into the temple and he offers a pig on the altar up to his God, Zeus. This became known as the abomination of desolations. When you hear about the abomination of desolation, even Jesus spoke about the abomination of desolation. But he spoke of it not in the terms of past, he spoke of it in the terms of future. And the reason he did that, because there is a coming abomination of desolation who's gonna, that's gonna be committed by who? The Antichrist. When he comes into the temple and declares himself to be God, and he demands worship. And he defiles the temple and tears down the altar and, and uh, he demands to be worshipped. 
and, and sacrifices made to him, and that will be the real abomination of desolation. But when the Jews got wind of what he had done, they revolted. They, they gathered their arms up and went to war, and Antiochus, this first revolt, he defeated it, and he slaughtered the Jews. Anybody that had any kind of part in that rebellion, he slaughtered them. And, and uh, he reinstituted the, the uh, worship of his gods and, and again uh, declared that uh, Jews can have nothing to do with Judaism at that point. Well, a few years after that, there was this guy named Matthias, Mattathias. And he came into the temple and he was told that he would have to make a sacrifice upon the pagan altar. And he refused to do it. But one of the Hellenized Jews agreed to do it. And when he did it, Matthias, Mattathias killed him. And when he killed him, he knew his life was in danger and his family life, his family's life were in danger. Life were in danger. And so he gathered up his family, his five sons, and he went to the wilderness. Well, one of his sons named Judas Maccabee, Judas the Hammer. Judas led this guerrilla warfare for several years. And he had a lot of success and he, he gave the Greeks, he gave the Greeks a lot of grief and uh, caused a lot of problems. And his army grew stronger and stronger month by month as, as he began to have these victories and a lot of Jews joined up with him. And eventually in 166, uh, he defeated the Greeks and ousted the Greeks out of Palestine. He chased them out of Palestine and they weren't coming back because he was a tough dude. And so uh, this began what's known, I talked about a little bit last week, as the Hasmonean Empire. You heard of the Hasmonean Empire. And after the victory, they went in and uh, set the temple back up in order the way it was supposed to be with what they had available to use. And then they determined a day around... Our Christmas Day around December the 25th would be our month. I can't, I don't know the Jewish months to compare to that, but, but it's around December the 25th. Uh, they came, they decided to, that they were going to rededicate the temple. And uh, when they went to rededicate the temple, it required eight days. They were to light the menorah and the menorah was to burn for eight days. Well, they only had enough oil to burn the menorah for one day, but Tradition says, and I, I believe this was the Lord, the Lord blessing these people. He gives them back their land for a while. He gives them back rule over their land for a while. And he blesses the temple. And so the oil lasted all eight days. It was a miracle. And thus you have the feast of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. You remember when Jesus comes into the temple on the day of Hanukkah, and he says, I am the light of the world. You know, that's why we burn Christmas lights. Is because, you know, the people act as if Christmas and Hanukkah are these two totally separate events. But in some ways they're tied together because when we put our Christmas tree up and put our lights on our Christmas tree, we're proclaiming Jesus as the light of the world. They're proclaiming this, this enduring light that doesn't go out. We're proclaiming basically the same thing. All right, now, let's go to the interpretation. We, we, we got these other verses when we looked at the, the, other, the, the first part of the, 
the, the vision. But let's go to the interpretation now where, where we left off last time. And let's pick up in verse number 22 and we'll get Gabriel's interpretation. Listen to what he says. He says, as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power, not with the power that Alexander the Great had. So you have these four kingdoms uh, led by these four generals. And understandably, it's not near as strong as, as the kingdom that, that uh, was led by Alexander the Great because a house divided falls. It's not, it's not as strong as it would be if they were, they were together. Then in verse number 23, now here's what I want you to watch. Here's where the prophecy kind of moves from uh, the media Persian empire and from the, solution, from the, the, the Grecian empire and from the uh, four generals to and from Seleucus, I mean from Antiochus Epiphanes himself, it moves towards the Antichrist. Watch this in verse number 23. It says, In the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. Now in the latter time of the four kings kingdom, that was right at the end, and that's exactly when it happened. Right before Rome took power, Antiochus Epiphanes took power. So he was, in, he was, he was king in the latter days of their kingdom. In the latter days of their kingdom. But there's something here that begins to move us towards the Antichrist and towards the last days, uh, towards the second fulfillment of this prophecy. Because he says, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. So there's coming another fulfillment of this when transgressions have reached their fullness, when the cup of wrath is full and another king's going to rise. And look at this king having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. In other words, one translation says he understands uh, riddles. Another version says he, he, our version says he understands sinister schemes. You know what that means? That means he's, man, he understands evil. He understands how to work with evil. He understands how to, how to use the power of the devil for his own benefit. And so, I mean, if he's got the demons on his side, then he knows every move of his enemies before they even move because he's got supernatural forces behind him. Look at the next verse. You can see that right away. Verse number 24. His power shall be mighty, but it's not by his own power. Antiochus Epiphanes didn't operate in his own power. He operated in the power of Satan. But this Antichrist is going to be possessed by Satan. And, and so he's not going to operate by his own power. He's going to be stood up by the devil and he's going to actually do whatever the devil wants him to do. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, the mighty people that come against him, the mighty nations that come against him and also the holy people. So he's going to set out to annihilate the Jews just like Hitler did. So there's going to be a Holocaust greater than, than, uh, than there was uh, during the age of Hitler and uh, during World War II. And, and uh, not only that, uh, uh, he's going to come against uh, the church, what's the, the church that's, that's here uh, after the rapture, which will be the tribulation saints. So, so it's going to get really bad. Now, then in verse number 25, though his coming, through his coming, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Man. That's almost like reading the newspaper. I mean, it, it sounds like some of our modern day leaders or politicians that, that, that uh, cause deceit to prosper. 
or they prosper through deceit. You could, you could word that either way. Uh, they say whatever, whatever uh, the political winds uh, cause them to say. Uh, they, they don't operate on integrity. They operate by deceit. They, they operate to, to deceive people. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. I mean, he will, he will be possessed by Satan. And Satan is the epitome of self-exaltation. And so he's going to exalt himself in his heart. And watch this. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. When the Antichrist comes riding in on his horse, I have no doubt he's going to either be a communist. I have a motorcycle going off in my pocket. If that's Nathan, I'm going to kill him. No, it's not Nathan. All right. He will be a socialist or a communist. I have no doubt about that. And he'll ride in on this platform of peace and prosperity through redistribution of wealth. You hear that term now? Where you take from those mean, lazy, rich people and you give it to those hard-working, wonderful, poor people. Now that sounds, that might, if, if all rich people were mean and lazy, then that, would, that would, might be what we need to do. If all poor people were wonderful people who, who just are in the state they're in because of bad luck, then maybe that's what we need to do. But that's not the case. There's some good rich people and there's some mean and lazy poor people. And what happens, what happens when wealth is redistributed? Who gets that wealth? Does the poor get that wealth? No, the government gets that wealth. You look at any major governmental program, and let me tell you who grows. The wealth of the poor doesn't grow when you redistribute the wealth. The government grows. And the Antichrist is going to use this communistic or socialistic economy or society that he's going to set up in order to redistribute the wealth all right, but to redistribute it to him to where he controls all the wealth of the world. And so, you know, I, I think sometimes that, that I think it'd be great if every liberal politician, and liberal is a broad word, don't, you know, every politician who believes in socialism and communism, I think it would be great if they went to Russia and were made to live there for a couple of years and they would come back and they, I think they would respect the economic system and the, the uh, governmental system of the United States. Uh, I spent a couple of just summers, a couple of summers in Europe and, and I can tell you when I got off that plane I wanted to kiss the ground. I mean that wasn't, that wasn't Russia, that was Italy and, and, and uh, Spain and places like that, and and let me tell you what we've got it we've got it pretty good here in the United States of America. When people work and when people use the system that was created by our our designed by our founding fathers, they have a chance. They have a chance, and then certainly our government and our society should pick up where people don't get a fair shake and, and try to help them to. To do better, I, I'm certainly not against any kind of welfare, but but uh, to this idea of redistributing wealth, and uh, if we've seen just here in the United States in the last century, 
it just really doesn't work. It ends up growing the government more than anything else, and the and the poor really aren't helped by it. I don't know that I, I don't know if there are, any, there are any statistics on it, but I don't believe that in the in the last eight years, in the last sixteen years for that matter, that the poor are better off than they were sixteen years ago. In fact, I doubt very seriously that they are. All right, now he says he will even rise against the prince of prince of princes. That's an interesting name for the Lord, but but we certainly know that's the Lord. But he will be broken without human means. I mean, this guy's going to be so full of himself that that uh, he's going to think that he can when Jesus comes back, that he can stand against the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. But he, let me tell you what, it's not going to be a fair fight. Not at all. And the Lord's not going to use nuclear weapons. He's not going to use tanks by his very word. We're told in Colossians that he holds all things together. He holds all those atoms together that they can split and turn into atom bonds. All he has to do is let things go. That's all he has to do. And, and those people are destroyed. And, and uh, uh, that's what's going to happen. And he's going to make short work of them. And then in verse number 26, and, and, the vision, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it reverts to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but, but I, maybe he tried to tell some people, but nobody understood. I don't think anybody would understand. He didn't understand. Even after be, being given the interpretation, he didn't understand. Why didn't he understand? I mean, he was sick. It made him sick because he saw some terrible things, but he didn't understand. Why didn't he understand? Because the vision for him was sealed. He wasn't, in, it, wasn't in, it wasn't the intent of the Lord uh, for Daniel to understand this vision. It was sealed. It was sealed until the end of days to be opened in that time and to be looked at in that time, in a time when you could maybe understand this vision. I mean, you could have opened this up and read Daniel. I'm sure you, if you went back, I haven't done this, but if you went back and you read some uh, uh, commentaries from the Middle Ages, you get some interesting uh, interpretations of these visions. Very interesting interpretation because I believe still the vision was sealed. But I believe we live in the day. It was sealed until the latter days, until the time of the Antichrist, until the time of the last generation. I believe we live in the day. When this, vi when this vision is open to us and it's not sealed anymore and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you, you, it, reads, it reads like current events. You read Revelation and it reads like current events. You see what's, you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and you see all of these, the very nations that are named in that prophecy are gathering together north of Israel right now. And so these things, this vision is open up for us to see. And I think the world is ripe for this one world leader to appear on the scene. I think the world is ripe. The world's crying out for their Messiah, their false Messiah. And all it take is, all it'll take is one nuclear bomb drop somewhere or one major war and I think almost everybody in this world, except the, the elect who can't be deceived, will be deceived by the Antichrist. And I believe there's a 
very strong chance that he's living on this earth right now. He might be in this room. No, he's not in this room. But I believe he's living here right now. But who cares about the Antichrist? Man, the Lord's going to make short work of him. And when he's revealed, I don't plan on being here. I plan on the Lord taking me out of here. And even so, when he, when, he, when he is revealed, time is short. And when his seven years are up, the Prince of Princes, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is going to return. And he's going to make short work of the Antichrist and his followers. That's the good news. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word and for the book of Daniel and for these great prophecies. And Lord, we, we certainly don't have this all figured out. And I don't think you intend for us to do. But Lord, I have a sense, and I think everyone in this room has a sense, that these visions now are open for us to see and apply to our current age. We live in an age, Lord, where where we might very well see uh, the rapture of the church, where the rest of the, pe the people who aren't raptured will see the Antichrist. Lord, but that's not where our focus should be. I know that's not where you intend for our focus to be. Our focus should be on, on, on being ready for your coming. Lord, there's always been a possibility of your second coming throughout the history of the church. And so, Lord, we're, we're, all of us have been exhorted to be ready, and especially now as we see these things happening, where we know time is short. So, Lord, find us, show us what you would have us to do in this world and, and equip us to do it and help us to be ready spiritually for your return. Lord, we're to be watching and waiting and preparing the way. So we just ask for, for your wisdom in that area and your power in that area. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.